Hi, this is Coach MJ. You're back on the Mission on Possible show. On this episode, we'll be meeting one of the top ranking officers in the United States Navy, Rear Admiral Timothy Gallaudet, who will be sharing some of his own personal story. He's an author. He's been an official uh, political appointee in the Trump administration, and he's done so many other things, including being the oceanographer of the U.S. Navy and having his own private enterprise now. But he's going to speak to us today about his experiences in leadership and talk to us about a new book coming out. Timothy, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Admiral. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Coach. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So first of all, uh, for our listeners and viewers who don't know you and don't have the opportunity to look you up real fast, in a nutshell, how could we give them a, a little bit of an impetus about your background and what brought you to where you are today? You bet. Well, so I, I grew up in Southern California in a Navy family, and I always wanted to join the Navy and see the world, as they say, and it was true. Uh, but I also loved the ocean and studying it. So I went to the Naval Academy, became a Navy oceanographer, did that for 32 years, completing my service as a, an admiral and being the oceanographer of the Navy. And then I took those skills and I carried them on into an agency in the government called the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, where I served as the acting and deputy administrator, as well as the uh, assistant secretary of commerce. And that's like America's ocean agency. And so I oversaw a lot of the civil activities, non-military regarding ocean science applications, marine charting and fisheries. And that's a, that's a real huge CV in just a few short minutes. What kind of um, budget did you have to operate something like that? Well, shoot, in the Navy, I had about a $350 million budget. But then when I worked for this agency, NOAA, I had a $7 billion budget annually. And uh, doing great work. You know, the last agency at NOAA, uh, we flew 18 environmental satellites, had 16 ships, nine aircraft, some of which fly through hurricanes during this recent Hurricane Ian, the NOAA Hurricane Hunters were on TV basically all the time. And uh, as well as a number of hundreds of offices, labs, and about 20,000 world-class scientists and engineers. And you were running and heading these departments, these efforts uh, for our country. Tell me, uh, did you ever find that leadership was a challenge? Yeah, more often than not. And in fact, um, you know, I, certainly in the Navy, I had challenges and we could talk about some of those personally and professionally, um, always carried, though, by great sailors and people uh, through those challenges. And then, of course, in government at a higher level with the civilian agency I was with, um, that was definitely challenging and uh, just because of politics and ha having it's really challenging when you're a, a political official. Let's say you're, you know, a a lieutenant governor, or let's say you're like me, an assistant secretary, that uh, to, to continue to be a good steward of our of people, the federal employees, uh, while trying to execute policies of whichever administration there is, 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 very, is a thin needle to thread. I can't imagine, especially you have someone like yourself who has earned his PhD in oceanography, has this incredible naval, naval career, and then being put into that diplomatic confine whereby you might have the information, but you have to 
walk very lightly so that you can bring people on board to your way of thinking. It's almost trying to sell your agenda and real and keep people in at the same time. Very difficult, I'm, I'm sure. It is, you know, or it was, and uh, but but that's where creativity comes into play, you know. And for example, uh, in the last four years, uh, the Trump administration didn't fund uh, the science agencies fully, and we took a lot of budget cuts. So we had to be really creative about ways to, uh, I guess, grow programs and advance some of our work. And you know, one of the things I did, for example, was we created a, a small new program for ocean-going drones. And so we're talking about like the aerial vehicles that can fly that are now flying in hurricanes and uh, as well as these sort of surface and undersea robots that uh, collect ocean information and explore the deep sea that never had existed. And because because of the economic contributions, whether it be exploring for offshore energy or the important mapping that's done to manage fisheries well, you know, we were able to sell that program and we use this term called the blue economy which is the ocean, Great Lakes, coastal economy. And so, you know, the last administration, not necessarily keen on funding a bunch of science grants, but when we said, hey, you know, we, we, we talked about it in terms of the ocean economy, they loved it. And they still do talk about it. The Biden administration's taken it on too. So to do that, to lead during these challenging times, you gotta be creative. Um, stand by your people and find ways to do it. Yes. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your book? I know that, uh we we had a, a talk a little earlier and you talked to me a little bit about the adversity I'd heard about some of the things that you've gone through. They're all leadership lessons at the end of the day. And our audience, of course, have, has looks up to people like yourself who've gone through almost seemingly the impossible and found a way. Uh, give us a little bit of insight into that. Sure, Coach. Well, my book is called, or will be called, it's coming out in 2023, uh, Holding Fast in Heavy Seas, Leading America's Top Ocean Agency in Turbulent Times. And the idea is that uh, I, uh, I go through a lot of what I learned in the U.S. Navy in terms of leadership. And, and that all happened through a, you know, a, a kind of a, a range of personal and professional experiences. A lot of them were fun and funny. So I, I want to make, you know, the book is a good story. Um, but then there were other ones, like I, I've told you, I, I lost my house in Hurricane Katrina. You know, here we are in the wake of Ian, and there's news, news all over about these people who lost their homes and belongings. And, and we went through the same. And in fact, the storm surge in Mississippi, where I lived in my neighborhood, was the hardest hit. It was 28 feet. And we're talking about the storm surge in Ian being about 12 feet. So you just could imagine the devastation that I'm seeing from Hurricane Ian is incredibly a fraction of what happened on the Gulf Coast when I lived there. So our entire house was gone, but, but thankfully my family uh, evacuated and we lived through it. But, but that just involved a, a range of personal challenges, being uprooted, facing that danger. Um, but ultimately, and, and another tour I had related is working with the Navy SEALs. I worked at the Navy SEAL headquarters and that Navy community taught me more than anybody or anything that adversity, when you approach it the right way, makes you stronger. And so I learned just a number of really great uh, lessons from my naval career. And then when I went into government and, and led this wonderful agency, NOAA, again, trying to thread those needles was challenging, but I applied my, my leadership lessons from the Navy. And the book is largely about how I did that. And, and it's kind of, you know, I had a lot of fun on the way. I would say, I love the employees, I love the mission. 
I got to see things like a, a rocket launch of a weather satellite. I visited a number of our ships. I sailed on a few of them at sea with ocean-going scientists. Uh, met some really interesting people to include um, the current president and, and the past president. So, you know, it was uh, senators, astronauts, you name it. Had a really range of really wonderful experiences and all of that I, I try, you know, it, while I was trying to show positive servant leadership. That's interesting that you would say that, and I'm so happy to hear it. Of course, I can feel that about you. I was on a panel this morning, and the whole topic was about humility. And I kind of named that humility was the, was the, the new sexy cologne that leaders can wear. Because, as you probably have experienced yourself, meeting some of these notables as you go through your life and you go through the career, you can always feel who's got their feet on the ground and, and who still is, is looking for more kudos and, and you feel it straight away. Oh, absolutely. Uh, coach, you know, uh, humility is a core to my leadership philosophy. And um, my book is a lot, a lot about how I, I developed this philosophy and apply it, but you're right. You know, I think it's important for leaders to always remember where they came from and how they got to where they are. And I am, I'm every day. I was just keenly aware that the only reason I became an admiral and then you know, assistant secretary is because I had so many great sailors and then people, and you know, starting with my parents, carry me along the way. And, and that is absolutely true. No one gets to where they are without that. Um, and it's, it's a shame to see those who forget that and where their job or position becomes about themselves. And you, you really have to always think and be mindful daily. It's not about you as a leader. It's really about those you lead. Uh, that's just important and critical. I uh, I certainly salute that. And I have had an experience uh, myself and in my own career uh, where I heard Deepak Chopra on a three-day weekend talk to our group. We were about 300 in the room. And, and the, the topic was leadership and then where you are in life, what you have, your assets, your stock portfolio, your house. Uh, your shiny car, your watch, and it sums up this way. We are neither our positions nor our possessions. So who are we is how people feel that we are. What impression do we leave them? And when we walk out of the room, they're not going to remember what we say, but they will remember how we made them feel. Well, that's great, Coach. You know, in fact, that, that was really an underlying, um, found, the foundation of my leadership approach is every personal interaction. And it could be an email. It could be a text. It could be a speech to hundreds of people. It, everyone, I, I strive to make people feel valued in a, in a way that was genuine, too. It's really easy to kind of blast out platitudes. You're great. Everything's awesome. You know, that's that's easy. But doing it in a way that acknowledges individuals for what they are really doing. And, and I made a habit of this. It's where I would uh, I would routinely. Uh, research people and what they were doing in the agency, whether it be writing a scientific paper, performing an at-sea research experiment, even the administration, administrative professionals managing programs or IT, you know, acknowledging what they did and then saying not only this is what you did and it's really important, but then giving them like an example or explaining in a way that's sort of powerful about why it is important. And, uh, you know, just like, for example, I'd, I'd love to tell the IT people how critical they were because they could make things happen like, which I described, this billion dollar satellite go up into space, a satellite, mind you, which encompasses every scientific advancement 
from the beginning of the industrial revolution till today. Our weather satellites are really are, are works of art. They contain everything, every advancement in system systems engineering, computer engineering. They even involve, um, besides the material science, a bit of relativity, you know, general relativity and special relativity to operate them. The knowledge of all that goes into a little box the size of a VW bug. And it performs that the life-saving imagery, those loops of the hurricane that like we saw with Ian and every hurricane before it. And how did that happen? Well, our computer nerds who do run our IT systems, keep our networks going so that we could exchange the information and run those programs, et cetera, et cetera. And so I do things like that to people, the little people and the big people. And it's funny, I had a, a really wonderful employee who is a, like a media person, always set up conferences. And she wrote me a note uh, when I, at just one point, and she, she was from Colorado and she said, you know, Tim, um, you always make, help, help make the little people feel important. And I said, I wrote her right away. I said, Hillary, uh, her, her name was Hillary Petticord. And I said, you, there are no little people. Everybody on the team matters. And it is, it's, the onus is on leadership to make sure that everyone feels that way. And then of course, they're all going to trust leaders more and contribute in a, in a much more impactful way. That's awesome. I, I heard some quote uh, recently. It was something to the effect of, I met someone and they wanted to impress on me how important they were. And then I met a leader who impressed on me how important I was. Oh, that's such a great quote. Absolutely true. Yes. So, yes, it is a very important thing because whether you're leading the entire Navy of the United States or running a political politically appointed uh, department, whether you're running a $5 billion, $6 billion budget or a $500 a day canteen, leadership is leadership. We deal with people every day and we have one opportunity to impress them about how much we care. How much we know is anybody can say, but how much we care is what they really want to feel. Amen. Well said. As we go forward year after year after year, do oceanographers track this data? And are we experiencing more storms than usual? Are we experiencing any anomalies that uh, are bringing out red red, red flags? We are, uh, Coach. And, and in fact, it's interesting. You're, so you're touching on the topic of climate change, and that seems to be really polarizing right now. And my background's in science. And I think an important thing about communicating climate and global change is uh, to be very more specific, which allows then for more informed actions, which is what this is all about, is making the right actions based on these changes. And so uh, a lot of people become really alarmist. And, and you know, uh, for example, the current president uh, says we're in a climate crisis yeah. and uh, calls climate change an existential threat. Uh, now, I absolutely acknowledge the changes that are occurring. I don't really believe it's an existential threat. I think an existential threat is what Putin's doing in Ukraine right now and the chance for nuclear war. That's existential. Climate change is something we have the technology to get around. That's by reducing emissions, finding alternative fuels, and then mitigating the impact of these, you know, these storms. For example, uh, I've seen so many people just throw out these generalities. Okay, climate change, more storms, everything's bad. Now, let's just be real about what we're talking about. There has not been an increase of, of land falling hurricanes over the US in the last 50 years. That's a fact. So what has there been an increase in? The intensity of some, some inten intensity of storms has increased to some degree, 
Um, and, but there's, there's a lot of, there's a, it, it matters to go into the details of what's happening. And so uh, um, and, uh, you, you see, for example, there has been an increase in tropical cyclones in I think the North Atlantic, but again, not landfalling hurricanes. So, you know, we have to just acknowledge what's happening and be specific about it. Uh, I, I guess I, also I, I, in listening to you say that, uh, Admiral, I, I look at it and I go, well, how, how much intel did they have 50 years ago? And how, how, uh, how animated was the media 50 years ago? And, you know, did we have what we have today? So maybe today we have, we have a bigger magnifying glass on, on the situation. Well, that's true. Uh, I mean, the data going back is are fairly good, not as good, of course. It's always a resolution and time and space having increased. But ultimately, you make a great point, Coach, and, and that's just really it. So I think what I'm in the line of doing right now, I work for a number of companies that collect environmental information, make predictions. And I think that's where we can make the biggest, I guess, difference, positive difference when we're talking about climate change uh, is being able to predict the things that kill people and damage property, like hurricanes. You know, people still didn't evacuate um, out of Fort Myers with uh, with a two day notice. I mean, there was a cone of uncertainty, and it, they were right on the border, and it was basically it was scary enough to have left. And a lot of people got fooled that it was going to go into Tampa because our predictions weren't. There was uncertainty. I think the National Hurricane Center, which I was in charge of ultimately at a time, did a great job. They're great people. But, but it's hard to wire a storm within, you know, 10 kilometer uh, position on the track. So they, but ultimately it's people got fooled because they thought it was going to go into Tampa on Monday and by Wednesday it rolled over Fort Myers. So that, that's what we can do. We can, if we improve our predictions and reduce the uncertainty, that ultimately is, uh, I think, a holy grail and money for how we should be ad addressing this topic of climate change. Better predictions. And, and and you're currently right now you're you're CEO of a company that uh, drives data and systems um, to to bring higher awareness of these systems of the weather buoys and things like that. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? <clears throat> yeah, Coach. Uh, I I am a consultant and I work with a number of high tech ocean weather environmental companies that do just that. Uh, some of them, uh, one of them is called Linker, and they have employees that work in the National Water Center at NOAA and the National, uh, pardon me, the Environmental Modeling Center at NOAA that, that run these predictions uh, of where storms will go. Uh, I have another company named Tomorrow IO that is uh, building a constellation of, of weather satellites and they provide commercial weather predictions that are very, very accurate and tailored to whatever you're going to do, be it, be it uh, if you're uh, flying for a FedEx or you're an airline pilot at JetBlue or you're a rail operator in the Midwest uh, trying to ensure crosswinds don't derail your train. They're, they're a fantastic company. Uh, another company is this really cool ocean buoy company called SoFar, which has a global network of these wave buoys and met ocean buoys that shipping companies use and they, and they route around damaging you know, severe storms to stay safe and also improve their fuel efficiency. So it's, it's using the knowledge of this environment and all this great tech that's out there now to uh, not only just mitigate the impacts of you know, changing weather systems and severe weather, but also um, using that knowledge to advantage. Yes. And of course, data right now is king. Um, now we're able to harness data. We're able to collect it in, in new different ways. And the applications, what you just talked about, 
a company that is doing a commercial shipping can benefit from that as well as a storm center, uh, emergency services, et cetera. So yeah, great stuff. We are evolving, as they say, and we've got a lot to learn with people like you out there who've educated themselves in this field. I'm sure that we can go further than we ever have before. Tell us, uh, you say your book is going to be available in 2023. Could you give us the title again? Yes, it's called Holding Fast in Heavy Seas, Leading America's Top Ocean Agency in Turbulent Times. We'll be looking for that book. I'll ask our editors to uh, put a little flash here on the bottom of our episode so we get tuned. By the way, you also have your own podcast that you that you manage, you host, and you produce. Yeah, kind of you to mention, Coach. Yes, I do. It's called the American Blue Economy Podcast, and it's uh, hosted on the American Shoreline Podcast Network uh, that's uh, produced by a, a media company called Coastal News Today. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I have it, like you, uh, it, it's, it's a niche topic of people who are in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes uh, regions that, uh, you know, on how to grow a sustainable economy that doesn't harm the environment, but also helps communities thrive. And, uh, and we just talk about topics that uh, are of interest to that, that kind of group of people. And Admiral, before we go, you've traveled the world. We may, we may have crossed over this topic or in an earlier conversation. Some of the places that you've been to where you've really been astonished by the amazing beauty and wonderment of the oceans that we have, because you were really the oceanographer of the world. Could you give us a little, just a quick, a quick tour? Well, gosh, you're, that's a that's a tall order there, Coach. But I'll give up. I give my best. Well, yeah, I was the oceanographer of the Navy, and then at NOAA, you could say I was the senior official in the government for ocean science and technology. And uh, and we did a number of things. We developed a national strategy to map the ocean and, and a plan, basically. And, uh, and then I was able to travel around and promote that and other work like restoring coral reefs, cleaning up marine pollution and plastics, and uh, it, it, uh, preserving, protecting, conserving coral reefs. Uh, all of these are, are activities I worked to champion and still do. Uh, one of, in one capacity, I was a ch the chairman of the United States Coral Reef Task Force. There is such a thing, very cool job title, I must say. And that involved me traveling around the country and partner states, nations, uh, to protect, conserve, and study coral reefs. And that, and that got me in 2019 to visit the island of Palau, uh, north of the Philippines, and which has some of the most pristine coral reefs on the planet. And they have a national marine sanctuary there, for example. Um, and we talked about the Red Sea, and I think Palau is absolutely on par with the Red Sea in terms of natural beauty, sea life. Corals. I, I said that the it's like the redwood forest for coral in Palau. And when I saw what they were doing, I noticed that NOAA has a whole network of national underwater parks called marine sanctuaries. And one of them was in American Samoa that its kind of purpose was to protect the corals in the region. So I spearheaded a partnership and signed the agreement uh, for our sanctuary in American Samoa and the sanctuary in Palau to partner together. And so in terms of just ocean beauty, health, conservation, it was a great partnership. They're still doing it in terms of exchanging information about how to protect corals and manage them. At the same time, uh, we want, you know, national security is also one of my uh, lines of effort, if you will, still. And that was really important because you see what China is doing around the world. 
uh, predatory trade practices, harmful environmental practices, everything else that we know about. And by reinforcing our partnership with Palau, who's very close to China's back, you know, front door, uh, we are helping retain and advance American influence in that critical region. And there are par other partnerships like that. I think, I think the environment, things like fish, sustainable fisheries, coral, the science of it all is like, it's like a secret weapon for the U.S. Uh, it's a soft power secret weapon because the environment, environmental record of China, our top adversary, is horrendous. And when countries like Palau or even the Europeans see what we do in terms of protecting and promoting the environment, they want to partner with us. They do not want to partner with China. So environmental conservation is like a soft power secret weapon. Wow, that's interesting. Tell me. Uh, are you involved? Because uh, I've also noticed that there's a university that has your name attached to it. Was this a, some ancestor? Looks like this university goes way back. And so does your name, family name. Yes. Uh, well, I, this, it's the other way around. I'm named after the founder or I, have, okay. I share the name yes, sir. of the founder. And this is a definitely a different topic of switching gears, but it's great because I think it reflects important uh, important topic nowadays, uh, and this is this topic of diversity and inclusion. My 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 ancestor Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet was uh, founded the country's first school for the deaf and hard of hearing, and his, and then that grew into a college, and now is a university in, in Northeast Washington D.C. And I, I'm really proud of that legacy because at the time in the late 1700s, you know, U.S. was a the United States was just forming. And, and if you were born deaf, you had it hard. There was no system for education. So you pretty much uh, didn't have that opportunity at all. And you didn't, couldn't learn how to really communicate and therefore not even function and contribute. Well, as in Europe, you know, that well-established systems for education of the deaf were in place. And my ancestor was a minister, Episcopalian minister, and he got to know... Um, a woman who is his friend's daughter, who he was deaf, and he, in getting to know her and being kind and empathetic, he realized that she was as smart and capable as anybody else, but she needed a means to communicate. And he was inspired to go to Europe and learn all about deaf education and bring back textbooks. And he then established the first school and, and helped develop American Sign Language, ASL. And, and the rest is history. And I just thought, wow, what, a, what an inspiring story. And to have that as my legacy, you know, a leader uh, in his time and in his place that uh, because of his empathy and genuine compassion has elevated so many uh, um, underrepresented and disadvantaged people, this deaf and hard, hard of hearing community that exists. And so uh, that's, that's right. That's my connection there. And I just, I just, my, the way that my brain works, I saw the connection when the first sign language I ever learned is a scuba diver. Because when you're underwater, you can't talk, so you need to learn how to communicate, and that's one of the first ones you need to do. It's been A-OK -okay meeting with Absolutely. you. Admiral Timothy, Absolutely. thank you so much. It's been an honor, sir. Look forward to you. The links are in your book. We're waiting to see your book in 2023. I expect to get a signed autograph copy. You'll be the first, Coach. Thanks so much. Bless you, sir. All the best.